Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, your reaction to Britain's next PM, the TV debate on Stoke-on-Trent between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. First, though, just a reminder, the Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscribers to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. No one tells us what to say. We can report without fear or favour and hold the rich and powerful to account because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers to the Byline Times. There's no oligarch or non-dom telling us what to say, so please subscribe if you can. Head over to bylinetimes.com for details of how to subscribe. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Now, I should say that this edition of Byline Radio, the Byline Times podcast, is going to be a little bit different to normal. There's no expert. There's no witness to uh, the events as it were other than you so i'm going to try and get as many people on as we possibly can giving me your reaction your honest gut reaction if you watch sunak versus truss on the television i was surprised early on at how aggressive rishi sunak was i did feel that emily maitlis needed to intervene a little bit more strongly quite honestly because rishi sunak was really really heckling Liz truss early on but some of the policy differences, I thought, between the two were really laid bare. I thought particularly on the issue of climate change, which I have to say was covered in disappointingly small detail. Rishi Sunak made sensible suggestions, I thought, about energy efficiency and recycling. I mean, I think on their own, they're not necessarily going to tackled climate change but Liz Truss despite saying that she was a a teenage eco-warrior said that she didn't want to see ordinary households penalized so she would drop the green energy levy for example so uh, how she thinks we're going to fight climate change when we're not funding green energy I really don't know clearly she is still in thrall to Boris Johnson and uh, she said that yes He made mistakes, but I don't think they were sufficient to remove him as Prime Minister. So she's still hankering after Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak was obviously a little bit more cautious in his endorsement of the Prime Minister, given that he was one of the people who helped to remove him. But he did say that he deserves 10 out of 10 for delivering Brexit. So um, I was chatting to somebody while I was watching it, and they said to me, as, and they, they are, I suppose, somebody of the, the left, somebody who might well vote Labour. They said, oh, I do hope Truss wins the Conservative Party leadership battle because that would be good for Labour come the next election. I suppose there is that argument, but there is also the argument of, well, don't we all want the country to be as good as it possibly can be and to be governed by the most capable and competent person? Now, if that's your judgment would Rishi Sunak not be rather a a better choice than Liz Truss I don't know I'll throw it over to you Uh, Jacko by the way on Twitter says it was a nil-nil draw I'm not sure it was actually but um, as I say I'm happy to throw out to you so uh, if you do want to join in the conversation by all means just request a microphone if you're listening on a smartphone in the bottom left hand of your screen there will be a little microphone you tap that 
to join in the conversation. I request you request access to the microphone, and uh, I give it to you, and we have a chat. That's how it works. So this is a phone in tonight. This is not going to be with an expert. This is just me chatting to you. And if you want to join in, please do. Just tap your microphone, request access to the microphone. You can make your comments. And we can have a conversation. That's the idea of it. All sorts of issues that they uh, discuss. Tax was right at the heart of it. And it was very interesting to me that Sunak, it didn't feel overly scripted in the way that Liz trusted. Liz Trust felt heavily scripted and she had her lines. But one of his key insights was that Liz Truss's idea of cutting tax at the moment, he believes, would stoke inflation and it, she said that Sunak's ideas will lead to a contractionary budget. So Liz Truss very clearly saying that Sunak's attempts to pay down the national debt will lead to a recession. But he says that her proposal of cutting taxes will lead to a spiral of inflation. So who's requesting to chat now? Is this Duncan? I'm going to try and uh, get you on Duncan in a moment. Where are you, Duncan? Are you there, Duncan? It will be in a moment, I'm pretty sure. So, uh, where is he? Duncan, tap your microphone to speak, my friend. You can join in then. Okay. Yeah, yes. there you are. Go on, you Duncan. You can hear me. Yeah, I, I, go on, Duncan. Okay, just, like, just to encourage people, because just to say, Duncan, a lot of people listen to the uh, Twitter spaces, Bylon Radio, right. and we usually have a guest or two. And, right. you know, it's, it's a listening exercise tonight, though. I want this to be yeah. as much as possible a joining in exercise, because I've watched it, but I'm, I'm really keen to hear what, what you think and what you're made of it. Go on, then. What's your thought, Duncan? Um, uh, I, I thought that, you know, um, tactically, uh, Sunak's rather sort of more aggressive approach didn't kind of bounce off trust. Um, most most viewers, most voters aren't going to analyse it as much on policy terms as we might. Uh, so to a certain extent, I was watching it with the, the, the policy issues zoned out in the background. Um, I, I it, She kind of appeared to me a bit, uh, having stuttered a bit during the, the 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 stages where there were more candidates in the race, she was a bit like the sort of football team in a tournament that's made it out of the group stage um, and is now in the knockout stage. And I, I thought his attempts, because he always had to try and be a bit aggressive, a bit disruptive, that it didn't really affect her at all. Um, and I, I, I thought she she won the debate uh, in, in terms of conservative voters, um, but by some considerable margin. Well, that's a really interesting point. And Duncan, let me ask you. Yeah. By the way, this is said with in any kind of judgmental way. Who would you normally vote for? I'd normally vote Labour. Yeah, it's I, I think you might be right in terms of the audience of just under 200,000 people of conservative voters that that is the constituency bizarrely yeah. for for this election i think you might be right but as i say i was watching with somebody who said and they're a, a i suppose a labor or certainly a lib dem voter never a tory voter they said that they thought they it was great that that trust might win because it would be good for Labour will be good for the left. And I, I was kind of thinking, well, well you know, what, surely we should be judging this on what's good for the country. Yeah. 
Well, the, I mean, the, that would obviously be the ideal thing, but that's not really the issue in this election. It's um, uh, the Conservatives are going to decide um, who, who they think is in their best interest. One thing that did strike me tonight that really jumped out at me uh, is that if anyone Labour Party thinks that Truss is going to be a bit of a walkover, I saw enough tonight to... Uh, to be uh, um, concerned that some people may be underestimating her. I'm old enough to remember when Thatcher arrived on the scene in the 70s, being you know, stuffed in every debate in the House of Commons by Wilson and later Callaghan. Um, and it's got that kind of... Uh, I think Labour's really got to analyse how she was dealing with things tonight, um, she wasn't thrown by anything. I thought I find she was very. I thought she was very cool, and he was getting just a, a little bit shrill um, in how he responded to it. But and that, I'm just leaving policy issues aside because she's clearly um, the difference between them. And I thought Sunak's mention of you know if we are conservatives and we're not for sound money what are we it's a kind of existential question for the conservative party but she came across as a bit more like a sort of reagan type and trump type republican uh which was you know you run up debt and you use that to pay for tax cuts um, I'm not sure if, if she explained everything as much as possible, but Sunak was, it, it was almost a bit like a sort of traditional conservative monetarist sound money type person in Sunak uh, against a much more sort of Republican, we'll, we'll talk the talk about this, but we'll run up enormous debts uh, um, to uh, provide tax cuts in order to, um, as uh, as Sunak said, provide the sugar rush just before I, the election. I don't know about you, Duncan. I, I detected the hand of Boris Johnson behind Trump. In, <laughs> in, 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 well, in the sense that she, she had a go at him on the issues that we are led to understand were part mm. of the dividing line between Sunak and Truss. In that, in that Johnson, sorry, between Sunak and Johnson, in that. Johnson, although he, you know, he talks a conservative game, and in yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. has proved himself to be quite a hard right politician. When it comes mm. to public spending, it's mm. clear that he's happy to do whatever it takes, in a sense, to kind of keep people happy at that particular time. Well, yeah. Sunak's desire is to have a much mm. tighter rein on the public finances. I think that's one of the reasons that he disagreed with Johnson. And trust yeah. us, well, we can start paying down the COVID debts in three years' time. Now, there might actually be something in that. I think people will hear that. And she described that as a once-in-a-hundred-year event. I think, mm. actually, we do, we have these once-in-a-hundred-year events mm. maybe every decade, in my experience yeah. of life. Well, mm -hmm. there may be different types of event, but there's usually something, isn't there? Once a decade, let's yeah, well, say. Well, yes. But, but I mean, you can I, kind of see the sense in that, in, in a well, way. Well, I, I, well, I mean, to deal with that in in order, I, I, I thought it's quite revealing that she'd said um, in my discussions with Boris Johnson this week, blah 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 blah. Mm -hmm. She's, yeah, she's yeah, clearly yeah, yeah. Uh, very close to that. Um, 
close to that sort of um, uh, Johnson approach, um, I've always thought the Conservatives will pay as and make as many tax cuts as necessary uh, in order for them to win the ne- next election, um, whether it was Johnson or anyone who succeeded him, because that's his approach. Um, and in, in terms of what she said about paying off the debt, um, it is one of those things where uh, you, you pay off the debt in big numbers early, or if you smooth the payment of the debt over 100 years, as we have done before from mm. the mm. Napoleon Wars to uh, Napoleonic Wars to the Second World War. Uh, we paid some of these debts over a longer period of time and smoothed off the, in terms of public finance, you, you smooth off the payment of the debt. You, you're not. That, that was kind of interesting, but also I think opens the door up, I would have hoped, uh, to uh, some of the more imaginative um, uh, um, labor people in the Treasury about how you fund public services in terms of investment, not in terms of the your 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 day-to-day spending, but how you smooth off not over 25 or 30 years under PFI or whatever, uh, but you try looking at it, how you pay for hospitals, pay for council, um, uh, creating council services in terms of buildings, um, how you pay for that over a period of time, smooth over a period of time. And I thought that was... I would have felt Labour would have picked up on something like that. I see Tom yeah. Watts. Although, although Duncan, I mean, what you're, what you're hello, talking uh, Hello, Duncan. Tom. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, <laughs> but I was, I was say, what, what you're talking about, in a sense, is borrowing for growth. Yes. That 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 is slightly different for, from what she was saying, though, isn't it? Because she was talking about borrowing effectively to pay off the debt or borrowing we've already taken on and paying off the debt in a more staged way. Uh, yes. But, but the idea yeah. of borrowing for growth seemed alien to both of them, really. <laughs> I, I, was, I was just interested on that economic yeah. debate, by the way, Duncan. Yeah. Sunak was really keen to go at trust on this because – the one authority that Truss has quoted in favour of uh, tax-cutting proposals, he uh, Sunak didn't mention him, mm. but is pra- Patrick Minford, who is, uh, <laughs> who is yeah. a professor of economics, <laughs> professor of economics yeah. in Liverpool in yeah. the 1980s. The kind of yeah, the, no, I remember him. Yeah, the, the the father of monetarism. So one of one of Thatcher's favourite economists. Now he is a believer in, in inverted commas sound money, and Sunak yeah. said that Minford, the Mm. one authority that she had quoted, was actually predicting that if her tax cuts were introduced, it would lead to uh, an inflationary cycle of of 7%. So, you know... For for mortgages, that would translate into 10% payments. But, of course, Minford was just followed on the Chicago School of Economics. Mm. Um, But uh, I think the idea when you're when voters are on a phone waiting to find out if how long the ambulance is going to take or if it's going to arrive or if they're going to get an operation at the at the end of it the idea that they're sitting discussing the the balance between m1 money supply and m3 <laughs> money supply is kind of 
uh, I think that's kind of unrealistic. That no, listen, Duncan. Good. Look, listen, Duncan. Right. Let, me, let me see if I've got this right. <laughs> one of them, I don't know which one. One of them is the amount of money in yes. in, in the bank, and one in is general the circulation. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but of course, as he found out with QE uh, in two thousand eight, and this is one of the this is how somebody like uh, Gordon Brown could understand it very carefully. Mm. You're not putting money into general supply. Mm. You're putting it into a controlled environment. So you're not standing outside spraying your, your watering can into the street. What you've got is within a contained environment in your, in your, in your, your heating system. It's not going to yeah, go well, you're sure You're shoring up the assets of the banks. So I was trying to, yeah, I was trying yeah. to explain that in, terms that i can understand yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, right duncan stay there if you will i'm very happy to bring you back in a bit but i'm mm -hmm. trying to get a few people on as well i'm just really keen to just get a sense of what people uh made of this uh jasvia's with us hello jasvia hi there thanks for having me welcome you're on byline radio what do you want to say jasvia um what's the debate and to be honest nothing really kind of engaging in the sense that I think people have made up their minds already. Um, what I really wanted to kind of share is, um, I, I, I mean, you've got a side either with Trust or with Sunak. I doubt there's many people in the middle. But what I really wanted to kind of point out is concerns from some members of the British Sikh community uh, regarding Rishi Sunak's ties with India. And he, he's previously, his family have been seen to kind of fall in line with the Modi regime. I think it's quite well known that India is being run in a very fascist way right now. Now, over the last five years, there's also been an uptake in what Sikh, a lot of the Sikh community feel is the targeting of Sikh activism via the hand of India in the UK. In fact, there was a series of raids in, 2000, in 2018 in London and the Midlands, which Indian media actually reported as being done because of quote-unquote diplomatic pressure on British authorities. So there's a concern from British Sikhs that uh, Sunak being in the seat will exacerbate the situation. Um, there's quite a few more examples. I encourage people to check out the hashtag West Midlands 3, which was a, a very concerning case that went to, um, nearly led to the extradition of three British Sikh men where they would have faced the death penalty out in India. And when it went to court, it was found that there was no substance behind the allegations against them. And Home Secretary Priti Patel was actually questioned as why she actually pushed for the extradition of these men. And she never answered questions on this. So there's a lot of concern there, and I just wanted to raise that with your listeners. Yeah, Jasmine, why would Sunak in particular, though, I, I, I'm aware of the case that you've mentioned, why would Sunak in particular, if he so, becomes Prime Minister, be yeah. uh, of concern to you over this case? So I'll happily relay. So I guess it's really to do with uh, direct ties he has with his family to the Indian upper-class elite. There was an incident where his father-in-law, I think about four years ago, as everyone has done in India, noted the uh, the increase in targeting of minorities. So his, fa his father-in-law made a quote where he said, India is no longer a safe place for minority communities. So if you're, if you're not an upper caste Hindu. And uh, from that, his company was directly targeted for um, deregulation by Modi's regime. Following that, by no coincidence, soon after... 
uh, Rishi Sunak's father-in-law was actually making a lot of comments praising Modi. He's never again made such comments against the the Modi regime that's going on under the BJP party. And it there's also said tells, he kind of learned learned his lesson, and he he kind of he's fallen in line, hasn't he? He's, he's I, I, will, I will tell you, Jasper. I was reading my newspaper, my Byline Times hard copy, as it were, and one of our reporters, the excellent C.J. Wilman, who writes a lot about the issues pertaining to Islam in particular. CJ has been taken off Twitter in India and the, the Indian government has suggested he's a terrorist just because he has asked questions about the Indian government and its behaviour towards minorities, raising exactly some of the issues that you have raised. But listen, I appreciate you joining in. Thank you very much indeed. We'll move on because, you know, I reckon it's an important issue, but a lot of people want to join in as well. Thank you, Jasveer, and I'm sure people will follow up the hashtag if they're interested that you have mentioned. This is Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast, and we are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, that very brilliant newspaper that I was referring to. If you want to take out a subscription, head over to bylinetimes.com, and in so doing, you'll not only get the newspaper, but you'll be supporting our work here at Byline Radio and on the podcast let's say hello to ewan hello ewan welcome along you're right hi there yeah nice to speak to you yeah um i think it's bleak to be honest i think in terms of um as a young person from scotland first of all being scottish it's kind of isolating because all of this is happening up where it's really really inaccessible especially because obviously only the conservative party vote and as a young person, it's bleak watching our future be debated by two politicians who don't really seem to care about anything other than lining their own pockets and kind of fighting over who can cut the most tax in fantasy land. <laughs> well, uh, what I thought, Ewan, and this, I mean, I've got three kids myself and, um, y- you know, from that point of view, I have a real deep concern about the future. And I chatted to some of my mates about what it's like to be a young person and obviously the concern about climate change in particular which is something that previous generations haven't had and i thought the debate on dealing with climate change was pitifully weak i felt that sophie rayworth should have done more to push the candidates on that but i also felt that their answers on climate change were really weak i don't know if that's a concern of yours as a young person but as someone who's in charge of three young people, that does concern me. I, I mean, Sunak talked about energy efficiency and recycling, which you know, are important, but they don't go to the heart of the big debates around climate change and the kind of campaigns by people like Just Stop Oil, for example. Truss, quoting that she was a teenage eco-warrior, her big idea is to drop the green levy from energy bills. So uh, I, I don't know if you heard you in a, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I spoke to John Nicholson, the SNP. Yeah. Um, and he was talking about the incredible wealth of renewables that Scotland has got. Neither of them seem to be aware of that or, or, or even interested in debating it. Yeah, no, I think it's just that they don't have an interest really in a lot of what um, can, to do with Scotland. I, I agree 100% that everything they said on climate change was pretty pitiful. Um, when you look at the news and, and you look at the media and you look at, you know, we've had the warmest temperatures on record and that really sends a message. And there was no kind of 
good response as to what government action can be taken in order to, to support against and to support for the fight for climate change. And again, young people are trying to push this. You know, they stri- they've strike from schools and um, they've tried to do their best on social media to spread it. But all that's happening is ignorance, particularly from the UK government, um, who are focusing instead on how much money they can make instead of the real issues. Um, and that's, I think, the main issue is that they're ignoring young people's voices on issues like climate change. I would say on issues like um, LGBT rights as well. As a gay young person, I'm seeing um, the kind of impact on trans people that, that we've seen in the 80s with gay people. And that's kind of um, conception of terror against trans people, which is just disgraceful. And you know, there's really nothing that's being done about it. Liz Truss is the one who refused to um, support, you know, the, the reforms to GRA and just completely dropped them. And it's that kind of action or that kind of inaction that we will likely see for, towards LGBT plus people when she, if she gets in charge. And Rishi Sunak has barely said anything about it. And as, as far as I know, has really voted on LGBT rights. So it's that kind of worst of two evils, um, especially for, you know, issues like climate change, like LGBT rights, like Scotland, for example, where again, no conversation is given to Scotland, particularly the, the rise of independence, the looming potential independence referendum from Nicola Sturgeon next year. It's all being ignored for issues that are, are supposedly central, despite the fact that they only really impact the people in England and particularly the people in London. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, it's only an hour and it's it's only one of a number of debates, but I can't, help, I can't, but I can't help but agree with you. I mean, uh, I don't know and whether you agree, but this applies, I would suggest, all across the United Kingdom at the moment, the view that the NHS is in a state of absolute crisis. Now, Liz Truss, and forgive me, but I'm sure listeners will correct me if I've got this wrong, Liz Truss said that she would scrap the national insurance increase that Rishi Sunak uh, has introduced and is is coming in, I think if, if it hasn't already come in, it's coming in very shortly. Now, that national insurance increase, in the first instance, is designed to fund the lag in the NHS, the shortage of cash in the NHS to catch up with many of the operations and many of the procedures that couldn't be done because of COVID. After that, the idea is that money will go into social care. And if we can deal with social care, then that will take a lot of pressure off the NHS. And as I say, unless I'm missing something, Liz Truss is saying effectively, we are going to reduce funding for the NHS at a time when anybody who's had any dealings with the National Health Service will know that it is in a state of dire crisis. And and that's 100%. And I think that we see in NHS historically, but I think especially because of COVID and the backlogs that have been created, we see the massive mess that has been left by the Conservative government. But we also see how bad we are with handling money. When you look at the way that they've wasted money so often with PPE that, you know, you just never used and it expired, with the COVID loans that were seen to be frauds that will likely never be paid back, the money that they are raising through the national insurance hike is just to fill back the holes that they wasted money on during COVID and and even, you know, before that. So I think that the issue is, not only is that going to then decrease the amount of money the NHS have that's already barely there, it's not even like it's going to raise any money. It's just going to fill the holes that, that have already been left by the reckless spending of the Conservative government that really has seemed to go nowhere because we're still underfunding so many areas. We still see issues in education and the NHS all over the place. And, and we're not really seeing any kind of change from that. 
You and stay there. Go on, Duncan. Did you want to say something else, my friend? Go on, come back in if you want. Uh, no, no, just listening. I, it, it's interesting getting a, a sort of perspective from Scotland. I've, I've obviously not been there for uh, many, many years, so the the political landscape has uh, has, has changed somewhat. Um, but in in terms of what uh, uh, trust was. I couldn't quite make out because I I was kind of blocking out the policy noise. <laughs> how she how how because um, they they they're in this very um, and the reason for that is because uh, they're talking about appealing to one hundred and sixty thousand people uh, who are actually going to be voting for them and not general voters. Um, so they they're trying to kind of push the buttons with the people who will vote for them, most of them next week. Because although there's um, uh, six debates um, uh, that, uh, that are planned, the key ones are this week and uh, are the ones taking place this week because the voting papers start dropping on doorsteps from Monday onwards. Um, and I'm not, I wasn't quite sure what, Trust was how they were going to say how they're going to pay for things, and and honestly, I don't think they know. Um, apart from them, some of them demanding twenty percent cuts across the board in every department uh, of of government. I'm not sure how they how they either create enough money or or produce enough money through taxation, but they can't do they can't do it. They're, if, if Truss is talking about lowering taxes, including corporation tax, um, or, or not allowing it to rise, um, wh where they where they get the the money from when they're also committed to big cuts across every department of government, that just doesn't it just doesn't work. That's that's two things clashing with each other. Uh, totally, but cutting taxes and somehow raising, as Sunak said, raising money to protect the NHS. None of them have, have um, in, in a sort of, none of them will give granular detail of how they're going to do that department by no, department. no. Although, in fairness to Sunak, I think at least he acknowledged the NHS. I, I felt that he, he had a kind of closer grasp of mm. day to day politics i suppose or had his antennae closer to the ground but so yeah. to remind people if you're listening on I, I, radio yeah. if you're listening live if you want to join in there's a little microphone icon if you're listening on your smartphone in the bottom left hand of your screen and you can join in just tap the microphone request access and all be on well i'll let you yeah. on uh, i wanted mm. to come back to ewan as well about the the, the kind of the nationalist dimension mm. of this ewan because uh, of course the bbc went to great efforts to screen this debate in Stoke-on-Trent, which is, of course, a traditionally English Labour voting town, very working-class area. Which... Uh, B sorry, BNP voting town at one point. Uh, the uh, well, not, not, in, not, in, 
Not even part 12, of 12 Dun- Dun- Duncan, 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 please. Uh, please. I, mean, I, I, the, the, I don't think they ever voted a BNP NP. Not an MP, no. They had no. 12 BNP councillors. Yeah, they did. Uh, anyway, yes. all right. Okay, I take your point. But my point is that it's a, a former Labour working class town which uh, has voted Conservative, got a couple of Tory MPs now in Stoke-on-Trent, and it's part of the, this kind of famous blue wall in England and Wales. But Scotland is apart from that, and the electorate for this Ewan is essentially south east england that's the stronghold of the conservative party now there are scottish conservatives of course and those scottish conservatives will get the chance to vote in this election but they are a tiny minority within the conservative party which i guess just amplifies that sense of alienation of scottish (laughs) voters from from the whole westminster process 100 percent. i mean it's a to be honest it's a common theme i I think that that's the case and that's why you're seeing the unrest and you've seen the unrest in scotland for a while it is a common theme that scotland are not listened to and are ignored and are seen as a small part of the uk and you see it everywhere you go but i think this is a fantastic example it is very um as you were saying that's england centric Um, and as you say scottish conservatives there's not as many of them because the SNP has has a very strong hold on Scotland, um, and we've not we've not voted majority Conservative in a long while, and yet we're still getting fed Conservative leader after Conservative leader that isn't really doing anything but for themselves, or but for themselves and for p- small parts of England when they talk about levelling up, um, and only come to Scotland for photo shoots when they really want to. And I think that that's the issue is that Scotland is, is being ignored continuously, um, and again this is a fantastic example, and that is why. Um, Scotland is feeling so unrest and, and, and watching it again and, and watching it and, and the reactions of the leaders and talking about different points it is just really disappointing because there's there's no discussion and there's really been little discussion on the future of Scotland um, and the union um, not even on these debates or, or kind of, it's not been a centre focus when it should be a really important point because the union is apparently a really important thing for the Conservatives and it should be for the new leader um, I myself um, support uh, Scottish independence and, and for me I want to see um, the kind of the retaliation and, and the kind of the discussion from conservatives and from the potential new conservative leader, but we're not really seeing that. We're not really seeing any discussion on union, any discussion on Scotland. Instead, we're seeing debates and discussion on things like Liz Truss's earrings or Rishi Sunak's dresses. <laughs> and and I think I think honestly, when I was watching that, and I was thinking there are ten times more important things like LGBT rights, like advancing that conversation on climate change further, eh, or like Scotland, like you know, young people education. Um, that isn't talking about Rishi Shunak going to a private school or Liz Trust going to a comprehensive. Uh, those kind of things really arc to me because if when you're watching it and you're watching them discuss nonsense things that are really unimportant when it comes to <laughs> who's going to be the next leader of our country to protect our country, you know, to, to support Ukraine, all of these important points, and instead they're sitting there or they're standing there talking about ridiculous talking points that are that are really nothing to do with what the next prime minister will need to focus on. No, and in fairness, I think that issue of the earrings, which I think was sparked by a tweet made by Liz Trust supporter Nadine Dorries. Oh, Nadine Dorries, yeah. But it's like, you know, again, Sophie Rayworth didn't to include that, and there was reference to Richie Sunak's £3,500 suit. As you say, the status of Northern Ireland, because of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which was signed 
by this government, yeah. thereby implicating both Truss and Sunak, signed by their prime minister. Uh, and the one thing that Sunak gave Johnson 10 out of 10 for was securing Brexit. Well, the Northern Ireland Protocol is part of his Brexit deal. So Sunak gives that 10 out of 10. You've got trust still hankering for him. And you think, well, okay, that that jeopardises the position of Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom. It's certainly created conflict and polarised Northern Ireland in, in a way that the good free... Friday Agreement had kind of managed to enable people of different traditions to live more peacefully together. They seemed completely oblivious to that. Likewise, the Conservative and Unionist Party, as it is officially known, appearing to have zero interest, less interest in the fate of Scotland and its place in the Union than in Liz Truss's earrings. Yeah, (laughs) Hundred percent. I I think it is. It's just to watch to to watch these kinds of things and to watch them laughing about these trivial things when there are way more important things on the agenda that are really really important for our country and for the you know if they really want to protect the union and they really want to stop an independence referendum and all of this then they really need to get a grip on the most important things. Mm. Uh, Nadine Dorries, as a cabinet secretary. Is, uh, it, no one else will ever hire her because she's utterly incompetent and useless and the fact that she's still spouting our same nonsense is just unsurprising because she couldn't do a good job as a cabinet secretary so now she's going to keep going on and on and on and on and spouting about useless things because that's what she was used to as cabinet secretary for culture and media but hopefully we'll get more competent government ministers mm. uh, making them a mess as a conservative government we're going to have so maybe that's not possible but looking for some competent conservative government ministers and and cabinet who can take us through really difficult times. The cost of living crisis, the fact that so many people are facing, you know, tough decisions as as before, um, whether to heat their homes or to to eat and and all of those things. And yet we're focusing and spending a lot of time talking about earrings. I think that just kind of places, I, I think that just kind of shows particularly the whole of the country where the priorities of, uh, of some people are at and particularly, you know, that the, that the question was even asked. It's just, it's a bit odd. Yeah. Go on, Duncan, go on. Well, I, I thought, you know, full disclosure here, my, my mum's from Donegal, so I've got a certain uh, bias in terms of uh, the Northern Ireland protocol. Um, but it, it was interesting that, that it, although that issue... Uh, pushes the buttons of uh, of conservative members and voters. It was it, I, I didn't really notice it. Maybe it was part of the time when I'd actually turned the volume down just to watch it. Um, it didn't really arise, um, and it, it's one thing I've I've had sort of talks with you know friends of mine who are actually in Belfast who are unionists to try and say to them. You know, English nationalists don't really care about you. And in in Scotland, uh, English nationalists don't really care about Scotland. Um, and in, in it's it's what it, it didn't and they're both the the both um coming hard behind the 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 Northern Ireland Protocol legislation. Um, which is another thing where the the sort of almost like heading straight down the tracks towards the EU Commission on a sort of collision course, but no one quite 
quite sure how that's going to play out. They don't, yeah, you know, it. They don't actually care too much about uh, the union uh, that they uh, they they assert uh, that is so important to them. It's uh, it's kind of um, it kind of lost on them that the the Northern Protocol stuff. It it just didn't didn't arise because the most of the English nationalist members of the Conservative Party are predominantly in the south and southeast. They don't really they don't care about Northern Ireland or Scotland. So they're not going to look for a long-term uh, solution to it. In terms of GDP growth, um, I, I looked at some of the uh, uh, statistics information today. GDP will always be growing uh, in London and the southeast. Because that is the area of the country where most investment is taking place, and that includes public investment. Uh, you have a, a, a sort of sound monetary policy type conservative uh, voter, in, in, perhaps outside London now, but certainly in southeast and east of England, home counties area, who are actually benefiting from Keynesian economics which is the amount of investment going into my area. London, there was one point where you can walk through London without falling through a hole in the ground where a new underground station was being built or rebuilt. Um, and there hasn't been that amount of investment elsewhere in the country. And that includes Scotland. There have been... They've, they've been uh, the rest of the country uh, has watched whilst... London, the southeast, has grown in in GDP terms and in terms of um, uh, public investment in ways that other parts of the country have been totally starved of. You, you know, well, Duncan, I know this only too well. Uh, living as I do in Birmingham, you know, we look right. we look in envy at something like Crossrail <laughs> in, Bir in Birmingham. We've had one tram network. One mm. tram line since I think 2004. In the last few weeks, ahead of the Commonwealth Games, they've managed to extend the tram by about one mile through Birmingham city centre. <laughs> That's it. I kid you not. That's it. Compare it that to Duncan, stay there. Stay nothing there. Nothing in stay comparison to what's happening in London, southeast. Nothing no, no, at I, all. I know it. I know it. Let's let's bring in Peter Jukes, executive editor of the Byline Times, co-founder of the Byline Times as well. I should say as well, by the way, our colleague uh, Sam Bright has written about this in his brilliant book, Fortress London: Why We Need to Save the Country from Its Capital. This is not an anti-London. <laughs> this is not an anti-London thing, but it is a, a you know it, it's pro the levelling up agenda that the government says it has. But with which it is on um, which it has delivered precious little so far. Peter, hello, welcome. Yeah, Peter, proud Armenian Welsh Londoner. It is a tragedy. I mean, I live um, uh, in Southwark. I see cranes everywhere. I see investment. I see <laughs> upgrading yeah. of things. This is a town that voted to remain, and. The towns that voted to leave are, you know, I'm just talking about Brexit here, which is a key part of the problem. Um, 
are the ones that are suffering. This is horrible to me. I mean, I don't want to live in a country where these huge divisions. I remember the 80s when in London, central London, I mean, central Birmingham was better, even with the bullring. These divisions caused crime, caused constant social tension on the street, caused distress. Um, and it is one, I've got to say, it's one of those paradoxes on Brexit. I mean, Carol Cadwallader, before she started on her journey, you know, the observer journalists into Cambridge Analytica and Russian interference. I think she went to Ebervale, I think it was, which was massively voted, well, 70% for leave, and noticed all the infrastructure that built by the EU. And at some point, you know, that we've got to turn around, and I hope the people who are, you know, suffering, turn around to the politicians who lied to them. Because, oddly enough, the metropolitan areas which were mainly Remain, whether this is the North or the South or the West, um, have fared relatively okay. I, they haven't shrunk. Actually, Northern Ireland, growth-wise, has done as well as London. What does that tell you? Northern Ireland is not particularly... It's because it's in the customs union. And we ultimately, to this leadership contest, the thing they won't ever... Their uh, myth, they cannot deny their origin myth is that Brexit is great. And these disparities, which already existed, have been aggravated. And it's such a tragedy that the areas which voted leave, because they were being left behind, because the inequalities and the asset speculation in our economy, which goes to property, goes to city centres, goes to these metropolitan centres, felt left behind. So they pressed this big red button of leave, saying, don't leave us behind. And what happens? They get even more left behind. It's horrible. Peter, stay there. It'd be good to have you on. I did say at the top of this, we don't have an expert with us, but you can be our standing expert tonight. Uh, let's let's have it here from Ed Yu. Hello, Ed Yu. How are you doing? You're right. Hi. Go on, Ed. Yes. Uh, it's all yeah. good. Yeah. You're right. Um, I just want to mention something. Like, um, um, I don't want to be um, branded as a conspiracy okay but i feel like we're going to be on the same boat because sunak and trust they are on the same boat with wef so uh, i'm a bit respectful what do you guys think i'm, I'm not sure i understand what you're saying edgy what, what you, do know you know the world economy forum least trust yeah and sunak they are both part of it as was boris johnson so I don't know which gain or how different they would be compared to how we were before, because the, the gain is the same. The World Economy Forum thing, uh, uh, Duncan, uh, Edu, sorry, um, it's become a bit of a kind of conspiracy theory. I must admit, I'm you know all for investigating conspiracies. You know, I started with the first journalist of the phone hacking trial, which was a criminal conspiracy, and I've seen other ones. The World Economic Forum is just a talking shot. It's like saying Davos. Um, I'm not. I mean, I, I can see the connections with Liz Truss and right wing American groups, the American heritage. I can see it with uh, this book that she wrote, that they all wrote, Britannia Unchained, um, about the low wage or other the, the deregulated economy. I'm not sure the World Economic Forum means it's like saying they're at the UN almost to me, but you know, uh, it just seems to me that you know, many people turn up to this event. Yeah, and uh, Peter, if, if people are looking at 
practical differences between these two rivals of, of course you know people might argue that the overarching game of neoliberalism is still the only economic game in town and it's arguably a game that Keir Starmer buys into as well I know that many of his critics on the Labour left would make that claim against him but in terms of practical differences within the framework that we operate in at the moment in the UK that were clear economic differences and choices being offered by Trust and Sunak. Trust profoundly tax cutting, you know, going into this world of even cutting back on the national insurance rise, which, as I mentioned earlier, the national insurance rise, isn't that the national insurance rise, which is designed to fund the backlog in NHS operations. Uh, I, I think I must be missing something that no commentators <laughs> appear to have pointed this out. If we have, if we slash the national insurance, re- remove the national insurance rise that, that Sunak has introduced, then what happens to, to waiting lists in hospitals? What then happens to social care, which is the the next phase for which these national insurance rises will be used. Now, it seems to me that there is a very clear material difference between the offer being made by Truss and the offer being made by Sunak. The, the problem is tax is always about how uh, you, the tax burden falls and on whom and who is most likely to cut their spending. Because that's the thing, you tax middle-income or low-income people, they stop spending and that shrinks the economy. You tax higher earners, you're basically taxing people who are saving anyway and i am struck by this language of the credit card you know we're buying 10 million here we've got to pay it off over you don't want our children the burden to fall on our children so we've got to pay it off now economies don't work like your own credit card we've seen 400 billion in the last two years pumped out in quantitative easing by the central by the bank of england to the banks who then lend it they get a very low interest rate they lend it out and they tend to be lending out on speculative assets, not on production. You know, that if the thing about, <laughs> about how you spend those taxes, if you invest, if you spend 200 billion or 30 billion, test and trace, completely wasted as far as I can see, useless test and trace, Germans did it for 1 billion, or was it 16 billion on PPE, half which we didn't work, that unproductive money goes nowhere. But if you invest billions in infrastructure and growing the economy, suddenly that the growth of the economy makes that debt very small. So we're having a it's not even neoliberalist. It's kind of it's kind of a, a barbaric argument about tax and spend. I what matters is the government is borrowing in order to create productive potential in the economy. That money spent by the government increases the productivity of the economy. When we had austerity, this was a really interesting fact. They thought for every one pound of public spending they cut, they would lose 70p for the private economy. Because this, the reality is public spending doesn't crowd out the, uh, the private economy. If a, I don't know, a council worker or an NHS nurse is paid one pound, they spend that money in the real economy. They buy pizzas, they get a taxi, they pay the mortgage, whatever it is, right? So increases the overall spend. And they thought for every pound they cut in 2010, they'd lose 70p in the private economy. They discovered actually they lose 1.6, 1 pound 60. That's the IMF discovered. 
And we mustn't think of it as a zero-scum game between public spending, I, doctors, nurses, uh, firemen, teachers, and the private economy, because every, every public sector employee is paid, spends in the private economy. It's where that's money spent, and is it growing everything? At the moment, they have no idea of how to grow the economy, how to create a green economy, any other protect. It's just merely selling to 160,000 conservative voters who are mainly probably upper middle class or middle class who look at their savings, who, who, who you know, want to reduce their tax burden. That is not leadership. That's not thinking about the country. That's not thinking about our children, which is not the worry about having a huge, huge debt. It's the worry the economy hasn't grown. You're listening to Peter Jukes. Peter is the executive editor and the co-founder of the Byline Times. And this is Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast, reporting without fear or favour. If you want to support our work, please take out a subscription to the brilliant monthly newspaper, the Byline Times, edited by our colleague Hardeep Mathari. You'll get details of how to subscribe at our news-breaking website bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and we're just chewing over the Rishi Sunak versus Liz Trust debate, the first of several ahead of their election by their peers in the Conservative Party. Not the peers of the Conservative Party, by the way, not the lords and ladies, but just by ordinary members of the Tory party, 160,000-odd of them who will be uh, voting for the country's next prime minister. We might talk about that as well, Peter, the kind of the oddity, the odd quirk of a democracy that allows 162,000 people to select a leader for 67 million of us. But let's bring in uh, Infospective. I, yeah, I just wanted to come in and say, I mean, off the back of what Peter was saying um, on the economic front, it, it very much feels like we're living through a giant sunk cost fallacy, um, the, especially in context of the mission for free ports, which both candidates are doubling down upon. Um, I'm not sure how much that's being driven by external interests. Obviously, it's a, it's a flagship capitalist experiment for places like the um, IEA and Shankar Singham, who was quite involved in the whole plan for Brexit. Um, but it, it the IEA being the Institute for Economic Affairs. It, yes, Institute of Economic Affairs, one of yeah. the one of the yeah. primary think tanks. Um, and I, I actually live in Teesside, so I'm within that big 45k circle that they've got there. So we're very interested to see what degree of rights erosion, with uh, Trust talking about a full fat report. Um, so um, <laughs> well, as soon as soon yeah. like, uh, oh, or was it? Um, it was Sunak, wasn't it? He was talking about the Freeport in Teesside, where you are, which uh, I struggle as somebody who doesn't live anywhere near a port, being in the middle of the country in Birmingham. How, do you know how it works? What, what's, what's the, it's a low-tax area. Yeah. Does it work? It, it, it's essentially in keeping with the sort of radical deregulation aims that they have been pushing all along. Um, it allows primarily um, tax concessions around corporation tax, around employers, national insurance. None of it trickles down. Um, well, to the extent that there's integrity among the firms that um, produce the inwards investment. I mean, typically internationally, um, it's been areas where people have stored assets um, away from scrutiny. Um, but it also comes with weakened, likely worker rights, environmental rights. I mean, in Teesside right now, 
we have a massive issue with die-off of sea life because they have been dredging the ports, which was predictably going to be an issue with a lot of heavy industry and chemical manufacture for sort of over the last 180-odd years here. Um, and it's been catastrophic, and there seems to be no appetite to investigate that. And that, I think, lack of recourse to redress with it is rather a lot Sunak's baby, he wrote a big paper about it back in the day um, and could well have been instrumental in him getting his role as chancellor. Um, that lack of recourse to redress, that lack of ability to, to get scrutiny and get some kind of compensation or investigation, I think is probably indicative of where it might go. Yeah, I mean, it's baldest terms. A free port, I read, is a, a special kind of port where normal tax and customs rules do not apply. So I suppose the the economic argument is that it would be attractive in terms of inward investment. You might get people coming into the country who will pay less tax, but who will be situated in your country rather than in another country. That's the, the principle behind it, I suppose. Yeah, there's a sort of a contradictory position with it as well, where um, it, the boundaries will apply. So you don't have, um, you effectively create internal borders in the UK and all the other patches around the country as well may have competing different levels of deregulation and tax advantages. So th there's there's very little economic evidence. Obviously, free ports were attempted here back in the day, and I think they were, they were cancelled in 2012. Um, that you couldn't create the same advantages with effective inwards investment that was focused on um, creating good jobs, creating local infrastructure, exactly as Peter said, creating productive things in the area, as opposed to what feels like um, just having Amazon distribution kind of jobs, Uber kind of jobs, where there is no effective protection and trickle down and i mean i have obviously trickle down economics has its own issues it's been roundly debunked that that money does come down if you make the wealthy wealthier without improving equity but yeah so that was just what i wanted to say no listen thank you for that uh, peter you were about to make a point as well that's an interesting discussion about free pause but you're going to make the point peter i think about the uh, sam bright at byline times discovering that you don't even have to be uh, based in the uk or a uk elector eligible to vote in this country in order to vote in the conservative party election yeah no no absolutely we, we they haven't replied to us we you know discovered this in a bit like the uh, charter cities free ports thing we have reported on the free ports thing which is a recipe for money laundering and illegality but more of that anon um and i'm just you know it is the weird thing is you as you spoke somebody spoke eloquently when i joined um you know in terms of northern ireland scotland we have rampant English nationalism and I went to Northern Ireland spoke to people in Dublin Belfast even the unionists saying we're more scared of London now than Dublin because rampant English nationalism but embedded in English nationalism is this post-imperial global nabob culture where they you know we are just creating these hyper globalized you know regulation free Singapore and Thames structures um and the Conservative Party embodies this. It pretends to represent, as Boris Johnson does, you know, with his immigrant background, initially, this Englishness, which is actually, as we know, he had a lot of Russian oligarch friends, 
deeply, as Theresa May might say, citizens of nowhere. And, uh, you know, I think this is the weird thing that we're getting this managed democracy that midway through every conservative administration, as Theresa May or David Cameron, now Boris Johnson, seems to be losing public prestige, we have a managed election, like the an internal election, 160,000 people. And I think unless this is stopped now, unless whoever succeeds Boris Johnson, um, this will be the way the governing party will see how to manage elections. You get prime minister elected by the Conservative Party, they go to the country, they get a vote or not, and then the Conservative Party gets mid rid of it midway. And to emphasize your point, a lot of we don't know if those electors are English or British at all. Indeed. Um, uh, Peter, stay there. Let's bring in uh, Tony Yates, who wants to join the conversation. Hello, Tony. Hi, thanks for um, inviting me on. Welcome. Um, on. I just wanted to make a couple of points, firstly about Freeports, and then secondly about the tax cuts that the uh, two candidates were debating. So, so on Freeports, I mean, the... the um, a uh, frustrating thing is about them, even that they're touted as a benefit of Brexit. Of course, we could have had free ports and did have them at various times, you know, without leaving the EU. So it's it's uh, it's sort of a fake benefit of Brexit. Yeah. The yeah. second thing, second thing about them is that they're not really a benefit. So what re research has been done into them has shown that all they do is displace activity from one place to another, and they don't generate a net increase in activity in the country that hosts them. What they are is a, a sort of enclave, a carve-out in the UK single market so that stuff can be imported and then without crossing the UK regulatory border can go back out again. And that's how, you know, that's, in, that's the sense in which they're free. So you have a sort of enclave of uh, non-UK um, customs, re you know, regulation. Uh, I, I mean, presumably there is, they are regulated to some degree. I mean, the UK would have if you like, freeport regulations, it'll be that they will differ from the regulations in the rest of the country, the, the yeah. lo lower taxes, for example, I'm imagining. But they, they, they could do. It's not, they don't necessarily have to be like that, but they could do. Obviously, you know, anyone in the border has to respect other UK laws, so, you know, you can't shoot people inside the freeport or, you know, rob each other, things like that. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. The, the main thing is that nothing in the Freeport crosses the crosses into the UK single market, and that's why, you know, they don't have to pay customs, and that's why they're not subject to other customs and other checks. But they're not a, you know, they're not a good thing. It's not a good economic policy. It's a, a, one of the silliest ideas that they've they've pursued. I mean, they, you know, they can, we should they, say, Tony, that you, your Twitter handle describes you as a former economics professor. So you, you're not just uh, you're not just making this up, as it were. But the, all of the Tory candidates that I've heard of are, are wedded to this Freeport idea. It, it seems to be one of these big ideas. Yeah, that conservatives anyway have embraced. I remember in the 1980s again these throwbacks to Thatcherism. Parts of the country that had been absolutely wiped out by Thatcherite economics, really. I, I think of Dudley in the Black Country, where the Round Oak Steelworks closed, for example, yeah. uh, and there will be many other parts of the country to which this applies as well, post-industrial areas, where there were enterprise zones set up with government incentives, uh, reduced taxes there, I think, as well. Is, is, is this uh, equivalent to that? 
I, I'm more in favour of that because that doesn't introduce this sort of patchwork exemptions from, you know, UK customs and uh, and you know and other other product standards. So uh, particularly, and then you can obviously direct them at particularly deprived areas, and you know perhaps encourage lots of businesses to relocate there. Uh, I mean, it, you know, there's not a great we don't have a great record of success at this kind of policy, but you know other. Other countries have done it with more efficacy than we have. In an enterprise zone, you might offer, I don't know, a holiday on business rates for a number of years, yeah. or the government might reclaim contaminated land yeah. so that it could then be used afresh, you know, rejuvenated brownfield sites and so on. So the, the, the government pump primes these sites and makes it attractive for businesses to move in. But once they have moved in and hopefully then moved into profit, they obey the same rules and regulations as everybody Indeed. else in the economy, unlike Freeports. And, and the companies are part of the, you know, the UK integrated economy with Freeports. What the companies are doing are, are importing stuff and then re-exporting it. So they're not, you know, they're not um, embedding themselves in the wider business community in the same way. The other thing I wanted to mention was was about the tax cuts. Um, so, you know, there's a clear difference opened up between the two candidates, Liz Trust promising uh, essentially a tax cut or, you know, cancelling tax rises and Sunak arguing that that's not a good thing to do. I mean, not in, both of them are wrong, really, but I suppose Sunak is closer to the uh, the position that I would adopt in that, you know, the, the thing we're if, with the, the main thing we're facing are huge uh, burdens on our fiscal capacity, you know, m mainly to try and resolve the crisis in NHS and uh, social care. So this is not the time to cut taxes. And secondly, to offer people help uh, with difficulties over the cost of living crisis. And cu cutting taxes is not a very good way to do that because it's not not well targeted enough. So you're expensive, and that's better done with benefits directed at the very the very poor. But at the same time, he's wrong to characterise doing it as you know potentially sending us into a fiscal crisis or prompting a massive increase in interest rates and then a recession afterwards i mean that's he um, liz trust was right to characterize that as pro project fear mm -hmm. but, but then she's also wrong to say that somehow a tax cut would turbocharge growth to the extent that it would actually save money and not spend it so they were both talking nonsense really <laughs> Says a professor of economics, what do you know? <laughs> Tony, thank you. It's really good to have your expertise. Thanks very much indeed. We do get some great, great people joining in on uh, Byline Radio. Thank you for that. Uh, obviously, my comments, Tony, were tongue-in-cheek about your expertise. Of course, you are an expert. Uh, Shergil joins us. Hello, Shergil. Welcome. Uh, thank you for... Um giving the, me the mic to speak and, and ask a question, uh, if I may. Um, and, and that is this, that, I mean, so I kind of have some finance background and belong to the finance world. And what we are seeing is a very, very deep recession uh, coming globally. And uh, therefore, everybody is, you know, sort of preparing for that. So from a UK politics perspective, I have i mean if we don't have elections soon the conservatives will likely lose big because they would you know they would just be at the receiving end of all the um uh, you know sadness the, the the uk public would experience because of the recession and and, and therefore uh, surely the uh, government should be thinking of 
um, you know, sort of a more longer term policy of how to keep the economy moving within UK. To what extent, though, the, I suppose the question is, will, will the British, if there is a recession like this, will the British public be fairly blaming the Conservative Party? Yeah, yeah, to, the, to, to what extent is this pain that I think many people are already experiencing and that will they experience, and will, they will experience, to what extent will that be the responsibility of the Conservative Party? Well, all of it, pretty much, because, you know, they gave lots of money and to some extent wasted a lot of money during COVID where, I don't know, people's nephews and nieces were on furloughs. Whereas when the money is needed now, we don't have the money and we, people are going through sort of interest rate rises, quantitative t- tightening, et cetera, et cetera. So the, you know, the, the, the government is to, it's, it's government policy, right? So surely the conservatives as such both, whether it's Sunak or Truss, would be on the sort of a losing battle. I'm not saying that Labour are the uh, alternative to go, everybody says, oh yeah, let's go Labour. It's just the ruling party would be suffering given what's happening in the economy. Yeah, I suppose the question uh, that's interesting to explore intellectually is if there is a global recession, some of that is clearly out with the control of the Conservative Party in the UK, isn't it? I mean, clearly the invasion of Ukraine is not their responsibility. Brexit, on the other hand, clearly is. And I think most objective commentators would see that as being a significant drag on the economy at the moment. Yeah, I agree. I agree. OK, let's bring in Guy. Thank you, Sergio. Uh, Guy, hello. Welcome, Guy. You're on Byline Radio. Hiya. Yeah, yeah. welcome, Guy. Yeah, go on. Do you guys um, in here believe in freedom of speech? Well, within within reason, Guy. You, you frighten me when you ask a question like that at the start of a conversation. Well, I, I just, my personal opinion is that trust isn't capable to lead the country and many women aren't and that men are more, far more adept to lead the country. Oh, well, see, that's, that kind of uh, freedom of speech, right? sort of being... Stupid guy. Yeah, okay. Well, we, we won't let you speak any further then because, you know, that would be daft, wouldn't it? Uh, let me bring back uh, Peter Dukes. Uh, Peter, uh, I thought Sergio raised an interesting point about the, the question of, you know, if we're going to face a global recession, clearly there are aspects of this which are out with the Conservative Party's control and the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a prime example of that. But we also have to then look at its own performance and it's so insightful, really, to look at how Truss and Sunak are pulling lumps off each other, really, in relation to the country's economic performance, which they are both, to an extent, responsible for. I mean, Sunak more so than, than Truss, because he's been the Chancellor, but it, it's as though the Tories haven't been in power since 2010. Yeah, that's, that's my fear, is this uh, sense of fake change that we have an internal party election like the Politburo and and everything's changed because these people are responsible in government for, what is it now, 12 years, uh, are nothing to do with it. Um, I definitely, look, you know, there is no doubt there's a global recession, there was COVID, COVID impact, and now we have particularly energy prices and restraint of trade, uh, wheat 
um, potential famine in uh, across the world because Ukraine's a major breadbasket. But there's also no doubt, if you look at the relative performance, we're bottom of the OECD, I think the 12 or whatever, along with Russia. So we, as Adam Posen, the former member of the Monetary Committee of the Bank of England, been on Byline TV a lot, I think it's written for us, he says, Britain's the only country in the world that declared a trade war against itself. You know, the gravity of our closest partners, we see these cues in uh, Dover, we've been documenting them byline TV for over a year, but you know now now COVID's over, or it's not over, but now people feel they can move. Uh, we're seeing the symptoms of that, and so my, all I'd say about that, yeah, I, but I, I, you know, you're not, you're too young, you're spring chicken agent. But I can remember the seventies, I can remember stagflation. When now we're we're hitting something mixture of stagflation and stag affluence. By the way, is that. The whole world suffered the oil price shock of the OPEP embargo after the Yom Kippur War in 1972. But Britain was the sick man of Europe. And it only really recovered its relative uh, backwardness. I remember traveling to Europe in the 70s, amazed and traveling to America. Everybody had a better lifestyle than we did. Um, and now we are, we won't notice it, we're lagging behind. And until they face the fact that a hard Brexit is catastrophic for the country. We could leave the EU and be like Norway. We could be a member of a customs union. We could do all these other things. The shibboleth of the macho that we left, you know, we left the EU in the most abrupt terms basically means we leave the top European economies. It'll take a while, but we have inflicted this damage on ourselves. And the Conservative Party, and at the moment the Labour Party, because they don't want to relitigate Brexit, are incapable of addressing that thing which has wounded us more than any other nation in Europe. Ewan wants to make a comment. Hello, Ewan. Welcome back. Hi. Yeah, I think another point I think that's important to look at as well with their policies is the Rwanda um, policy. Like, I think that's been a, a talking point for obviously for a long time. Um, and, and we now look at, you know, news articles recently, they've said that it's cost £120 million for 200 people now instead of the original quoted up to 1,000. Um, and now they want to continue this policy, you know, despite interventions from the European Court of Human Rights. At one point, some some were suggesting we leave the human, European Court of Human Rights um, who are no longer in the, in the leadership debate, which would be catastrophic for things like a Good Friday Agreement. Um but I, I think that's a really a really important point as well on the on the Rwanda and, and the fact that both of them want to push this policy further, despite the fact that it is inhumane and the issues particularly for LGBT people um and, and you know other minorities who would face further difficulties in Rwanda. Um and the fact that there's we're, we're not finding a better way to look at it, um, although all the all the leadership challenge wants to do is just continue this barbaric policy, despite the fact that we're already wasting 120 million pounds on it uh, for 200 people. And yeah. sorry to interrupt. I do feel so passionately on this subject. I mean, Peter and I are both of migrant stock, both of refugee stock, and this is one of the most disgusting policies 100% ever implemented by a British politician it absolutely stinks not only does it stink morally and ethically it's also woefully ineffective yeah. I think there's been a report presented today uh, forgive me either in the Commons or the Lords you know just talking about how 
ineffective it is it's it it is pure dog whistle politics it's designed to generate headlines in the daily mail and the daily mail of course or the mail on sunday yesterday saying truss i'd send more migrants to africa really where's the revulsion where's the outrage where's the honor amongst politicians uh, whether they're conservatives or of other parties to say this is no way to treat or to talk about other human beings this is utterly despicable utterly despicable agent you know we know that from all the facts that 70 percent of these migrants have genuine asylum cases like your father did like my grandfather did and worse, worse than the fact that there are these talented people like your father, like my grandfather, who'd come and enrich this country and be so grateful to it. This is pure national front rhetoric from the 70s. Do you remember? You don't. I do. Earlier, of course I do. Send, of course I do. Of course I do. Send them back to Africa. Yeah. It's a repatriation. Or people to the wrong country, of course, because these are some of them are Afghans. But you know, they, there's protected there's protections for Ukrainians and Afghans, aren't there? But let's not also forget, and we've got reporters going out there to document this. Rwanda had the biggest genocide in living memory in the nineties. A million people were killed. It has massacres. It has no security for these people. And imagine that this is what they conservative candidates are brandishing this is their red meat and it is moving into national fund territory i mean it's not quite the same we have people of color you know senior in the cabinet we have them senior leadership contenders but outside british citizenship status they're willing to torment you know send people to a third country it's just how do we get here agent i feel the same how do we get here Tony wants to make another comment. Tony. Thanks very much. Um, two quick ones. Firstly, on the Rwanda policy, which I have to say is just absolutely unspeakably shameful. Um, but aside from that, because I'm not a speaker on moral or ethics, it, it's also incredibly expensive. So I think that Rwanda have now said they'll take something like 200 uh, people a year, and that would amount to a cost of something like £600,000 per person, which is you know, just a ridiculous thing to do with public money aside from the uh, cruelty that it inflicts. Um, anyway, but the other thing I wanted to say was about Brexit and, you know, what, what we know about what it's doing at the moment. So, you know, beforehand, economists thought that the sort of Brexit we chose, although we didn't quite anticipate how bad uh, where things were going to end up, would cost about 4 to 5% of national income every year forever. And it, the evidence has come in pretty, pretty much online, I think it is. That is pretty much what it's costing us. It's hard to tell, obviously, because we don't know what Britain would have looked like, uh, you know, had we not left the EU. But as far as we can tell, um, it's as bad as we expected. The 5% doesn't sound like a c catastrophe. It sounds like just missing out on a small promotion or something. But if you think of that, each household missing out on that income every every year of their lives and every year of their kids lives and their grandkids lives it's a you know colossal amount of money uh, capitalized into you know today's terms it's absolutely enormous but what, what worse i think is that it, it 
it's in uh, Labour feeling that they have to accommodate to it. And in, they may well be right about the electoral calculus. It's depressing to think that they might be. I feel that we've entered a world where, you know, we don't really talk about the evidence and the uh, efficacy of policies anymore. We've entered a, a land where you can just make stuff up about, you know, what you're going to do. And, you know, one of my, the bees in, I have in my bonnet is the sort of utopian way that both parties talk about levelling up or industrial policy and regional policy as though that, that we can do, we can pull these policy levers and, and somehow more than offset the costs of Brexit. And I just do not share that optimism at all. Thank you very much indeed for that, Tony. Uh, Sergio, do you want to make another point? Yeah. Yes, well, I'm sorry for uh, you know speaking uh, too much, but uh, just just some context, and it's probably a question for Peter, which is um, since the start of the year, $33 trillion has been wiped out in terms of um, you know, assets valuations because of the stock prices falling, et cetera, et cetera. In that context, would any party, whether that's the Lib Dems or Labour or any other political party, stand to take advantage if they were to play the let's even consider rejoining the European Union? Peter, did you want to come back on that from Sergio? Uh, I I had this weird thing where they it blocks off some other speakers. So can you just oh, right, repeat? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, can you just repeat the question? Yeah, I sometimes yeah, well, get transcripts. Just, just, just raising the issue of it, at some point requesting readmission to the European Union. Whether whether that would ever be a a, a feasible scenario? Oh look. I mean, I was in the EU Parliament, which was much more interesting and much more dynamic than Nigel Farage ever described it for the first time about a month ago. Um, obviously, with the current use of Brexit, um, the Europeans wouldn't want to want us back. There's a tragic uh, example. They're not releasing funds to science programs because of the Northern Ireland Protocol. We have a government which is basically making Europe the enemy, and there's a short-term distrust of us. Um they would obviously, I think, because the overall benefit, accept a customs union and then a single market eventually. And then maybe in 10 or 20 years' time, a reformed UK, a UK which is not a post imperial state, which has somehow found a, a way of dealing with itself, I think would be admitted. But, you know, the Germans would welcome us back, but other nations wouldn't. Um, it's not as simple. They have agency too. We've seriously disrupted the EU, and Nigel Farage claimed we'd derail the EU. All those Brexiteers say, well, the EU wouldn't exist in five years. Six years on, especially with Ukraine, it's stronger than ever. So, we, you, know, you know, we'd be lucky to be left back. I think in my lifetime, oh, I'm 60, I hope within my lifetime we will be back. But our economies cannot separate in the way we're trying, and the force of gravity will draw us close to a single market, customers union, single market, that will happen. Let's bring in uh, Hannah. Hello, Hannah. Welcome to Byline Radio. Um, I was compelled to ask for the mic. Um, thank you very much. I don't know if it was a comment that um, Peter was making in regards to what are we going to do about uh, the Rwandan situation, where are we going? Um, yeah, um, what I wanted to say is, it did not start with the Rwanda. They tested the water, obviously, the conservative, with the Windrush situation. There was no outcry about that. Um, 
And it went, it dragged on for long. And up to to date, uh, a lot of that situation has not been sorted out by the conservative uh, government. They said they're going to do it. Um, Still, people are suffering. So if the Windrush situation has not been dealt with um, and there was not much outcry and it was there in the public domain for a while and it just finished, sort of swept under the carpet. It's not at the forefront of any uh, media or any newsletter at the moment. So for that case, I think they already know what's going to happen and uh, how much uh, pushback they're going to get from uh, from the public. And they've done that over and over and over, uh, the conservative governments. I'm not saying Labour uh, does not have anything uh, fault if there was strong opposition or any other party was strong opposition. Maybe something would have changed in regards to all the mess that uh, Conservative Party have done uh, to the fabric of our nation. Uh, whether it's the Brexit fabrication of uh, things, whether it's jeopardizing the Good Friday Agreement because of the Brexit, whether it's the Windrush situation, whether it's the the cladding in was it in Shepherd's Bush? Tower, you mean? Yes, Grenfell Tower. Yeah. It's been one thing after the other. Whether it's about lying to the to the uh, to the Queen and closing the the you know the House of Parliament. Oh, the prorogation so of Parliament. Yeah, yeah. We, exactly. We, uh, we sure, yeah. yeah. So they've yeah they've done yeah. a lot of things, and there's never been a strong pushback. Uh, they've. Uh, I don't know. They've messed. Uh, they've been in power, but I'm not blaming totally uh, uh, the the conservative. I'm also blaming the other parties, which have not been able to uh, push back strongly. No, well, it, it's an interesting point, and and I guess you know behind this, Hannah, is an electoral calculation, and the calculation is that some people will oppose it. And they will be people, I suspect, who the Conservative Party feels that it can afford to offend. People who would never in a million years vote Conservative. And then there will be other people who it thinks it can bring on board to vote Conservative with that kind of, I've used the phrase already, dog whistle racism, really. I think Windrush was an example of that. Uh, And the the vans that went round into Reza May's time, warning people who were illegally in the UK that they'd better go, you know, for fear of a, a border officer rapping on their door. And now we have the Rwanda situation, and the Conservatives obviously feel that it draws support to them that might otherwise go, I can only presume, to, to far-right parties. Uh, maybe perhaps traditionally would have gone to UKIP, but UKIP's no longer an electoral threat to them, but it was for a time, which is perhaps how we got here in the first place. But I agree, it's it's very sad. It is very sad. Um, Adrian, just as a note of of encouragement, the Australian government, you remember they had this island 
is very much copied the Rwanda policy, apart from, sorry, I'm going to fail Godwin's law and mention Hitler and Zanzibar and uh, Madagascar. But anyway, apart from that, the Australians had this island where they deport everybody to. And they, they, the liberals there, conservatives, you know, ran this election very much on these lines of uh, ousting foreigners, trans wars, culture wars, this red meat, and they lost. So I really don't think, it's not just from being in the bubble of byline uh, podcast and byline radio and byline times. I don't think the British people are like this. And if you look at the polls, we've done other people who thought they're not, you know, they're not caring about culture wars, free speech. And immigration is way down. You know, it was very high in 2015 for reasons one day I'll go into. Um, thanks to Nigel Farage and Vladimir Putin. But, um, you know, it's not high up on the list. So this is what they know to do. This animates the base but, and the base in both sense of the words, the, the fundament of the Conservative Party UKIP element and the basis instincts of the nation, which is turning on others or is locking the doors behind you, pulling up the ladders. I don't think the British people are like this. And I think this rhetoric might get a Conservative leader elected by 160,000 people, but will get them resoundly defeated by the country. I wish I could be as optimistic as you, Peter. What I do know is that those kind of dog whistles will be vociferously adopted and amplified by the Daily Mail, by the Telegraph, by the Sun, sometimes by the Times as well. And part of our mission at Byline is to expose these links between politicians and the media and sometimes the dark forces that we don't see that are propelling them. But mm. I've been through enough of these cycles in my lifetime, Peter, as you have, to fear that there is something within the British psyche as well, which periodically is drawn to these far-right tropes. Yeah. Or is me? No. I Look, Adrian, I'm not naive about... I say, say the English people particularly and any nation's capacity to become xenophobic and especially when times get hard and it happened in the 30s turn to othering to blame, to stab in the back mythology, to enemies within but there is you know, on the papers, let's be very clear, they only survive now thanks to the VAT cut on their websites. We always forget that huge subsidy which was Boris Johnson gifted to them or Theresa May did effectively and then the COVID bungs. Their circulation is declining. Obviously the impact on the BBC and I remember, maybe not talking to you, but some members of Byline Time team, 2019 Boris Johnson's going to be here forever. He's in for two terms. A year later, Dominic Cummings was out saying he was a trolley. Two years after that, he's gone. Never give up hope. That might be a good point at which to uh, close our debate this evening, mightn't it? I think it's a it's a suitably optimistic note, but thank you. And what I love about doing these conversations is that they roam so far and wide. We started off by talking about Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. We've had very erudite discussions about free ports, amongst other things, as part of this conversation. Obviously relevant to the, uh, the Sunak and Truss 
debate, but also a, a far greater depth than anything we saw on the BBC tonight. Because, well, maybe because we don't have Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss in the room, I don't know. But listen, it's been great fun. And thank you, Peter. Thanks for joining in. It's uh, been great to have you as a as a a co-host for this but thank you to everybody who's taken part as well and uh, just remember that uh, all of our work on byline radio and the byline times podcast is funded by subscribers to the byline times which is a great newspaper in its own right but also helps to support byline radio the podcast byline tv as well and our news breaking website bylinetimes.com that's where you'll get details of how to subscribe as well at byline times Dot com. Thanks, everybody, for joining in. If you've listened live on Byline Radio or listened again on the Byline Times podcast, we'll be with you again very soon. My name's Adrian Goldberg. Thanks for listening. Cheers for now.